2: Hello and welcome to The Art Detective with me, Dr Janina Ramirez. I'm an Oxford art historian, a writer and a broadcaster, and I'm your chief investigator of images. So this week's podcast is a little bit different. It's coming to you from Durham Cathedral, that magnificent Romanesque treasure in the north of England. And I had the most extraordinary honour of being asked to open their new permanent display for the treasures of St Cuthbert. Now, I'm an Anglo-Saxon scholar, and for me, these are the crown jewels. These are Tutankhamen's tomb. This is as exciting as it gets. These are the objects that the monks of Lindisfarne carried across the north of England for a couple of hundred years, trying to escape the attacks of Vikings. And now, for the first time, ever. You'll be able to see them in all their glory. They're exhibited in the most extraordinary cases, most cutting edge technology to bring them to life. And you can see the the coffin of Saint Cuthbert that actually carried his bones, the bones of the Venerable Bede, the head of King Oswald, and the other things associated with him, the portable altar he used in his lifetime, the comb that combed his hair and his beard, and the cross that he wore tucked around his neck and wrapped up in his burial shrouds they're intimate they're beautiful they're full of mysteries and riddles so in this lecture which i gave the morning that the exhibition was opened to the public i explore them in depth it's it's a longer art detective than usual but it is me at my most passionate at my most excited so i do hope you enjoy the podcast I'm not entirely sure I need the microphone because I'm quite a boomer when it comes, and the acoustics in here are amazing. Uh, It is true we have had the most amazing 24 hours. I couldn't sleep I said this this yesterday I could not sleep the night before I arrived here from excitement and anticipation Uh, everybody has the things in their lives that really excite them and for me the thing that really really excites me are the the Anglo-Saxons and particularly the Saints that I have written about and and out of all of those Saints Cuthbert holds an incredibly special place in my heart because of all of the Saints he is is the one that for me comes into such sharp focus through those treasures that you are going to be able to go down and see displayed for the first time in the most magnificent way. I um, did study Anglo-Saxon at York and I used to drag my friends and family over to Durham regularly and we would go down to to where they used to be displayed and peer into the darkness at the coffin and desperately try and make out what was going on on that coffin. It was impossible to see, I think we'll agree. Now, when I first walked into that space and I saw that coffin beautifully, perfectly lit, to the point where you can see every engraving, every runic inscription on there. I got goosebumps. Uh, It has been incredibly exciting. And this is the icing on the cake to be able to talk to you all today about Cuthbert and the treasures. this is my book. (laughs) This is it looking lovely and hardback. (laughs) Um, A a huge moment for me. I published it a couple of years ago and uh, it was the culmination of nearly 20 years of thinking about the Anglo-Saxon period and trying to think about a way that I could get a connection across 1,400 years with these people who, to me, feel very three-dimensional Dimensional. I feel like I know Bede, I feel like I know Hilda, I feel like I know Cuthbert, but that's me and I'm a bit odd. <laughs> so I wanted to make it possible for others to try and access these people. And And there's different ways of doing it. Because I study across the disciplines. I study literature, art, history, theology, paleography, all those different disciplines. I try and use lots of different pieces of the jigsaw puzzle to build these characters up and the artefacts in a way have always felt to me like the big connection point because they were there if Cuthbert's pectoral cross or his portable altar could talk to you, they could say they were witnesses, they were there with him, they were there traveling around the landscape as he preached, as he moved in that first generation of Christianity, as he moved people in the community from this pagan Germanic warrior culture into a new continental international world of Christianity. And they do talk. These objects can speak to us, but we have to learn how to listen to them. And that's why I work with them as an art historian. I like to decode them and understand what they have to tell me about the time that they were made and used. So this is exciting. I know you, you, my enthusiasm levels have been reaching maximum height over the last, few, uh, last day or so. But what do we know about Cusper himself? Well, this is a painting, of course, 12th century painting of him that you can go and see in the cathedral. And It's difficult with Cuthbert because so much of what we know about him has been spun, if you like, by the people responsible for his cult, responsible for this place, for Durham Cathedral. He has had his life written up by Bede, by others, to present him in a certain way. But I think we can still read these documents and find out the sort of person that he was. And one of the things that strikes me as so important about him is he is a little bit of everything to all men. Because of the time that he's living, because he's living at this point when Christianity is still just reaching up into the north of England, it's not until um, the the, the mission starts to reach the north in 620 that people start to convert to Christianity. And Cuthbert really is in that first generation of converts. And I think it's difficult for us to imagine what that time must have been like when you've got a world that has been in a a set of traditions that have been in use for hundreds of years. The Anglo-Saxons with their pagan gods, with Thor, with Odin, uh, with their timber buildings, with their warrior outlook, with their poems like Beowulf and with their gold and garnet jewellery. That had been the norm for hundreds of years. To come in with a religion that that in many ways is the opposite of that, instead of valour and fame and success in battle, Christianity was saying, patience, piety, sympathy, empathy. These are very different worldviews. And then everything about the trappings of this new world, it looks different. People were, if you wanted to become a monk, you would be in a stone-built monastery. You could go to Jarrow, you could see where Bede was. It must have felt like the gherkin in London had just popped up in the middle of the of the northern landscape because it would have looked so different. Stone buildings, glass windows, just a completely different way of life. And so to convert and accept Christianity and embrace it in the way that Cuthbert did early on was I think a a brave and radical choice but we have to remember he spent half his life in one way as an Anglo-Saxon warrior and the other half as a bishop and a hermit so he does become this bridge between worlds and I think that makes him really fascinating. I finally upgraded my map of the conversion of the north wing i 've been using the same map that is from the 1960s for decades and i 've just found this one now and this is great this shows you what happened so The arrival of Christianity, it's a funny thing, there's a book written by Henry Mayer Harting that's called The Coming of Christianity. And the idea that Christianity came and everybody woke up that morning and said, yes, it was Jesus, not Odin, all along. It doesn't quite happen overnight like that. Um, It takes time, it takes a lot of of movement of missionaries and ideas. And actually it's a slow process. The last place in, the British Isles to convert to Christianity was the Isle of Wight. I love the idea that the Isle of Wight was just holding out there just for an extra few decades. <laughs> just, but everywhere else, slowly from about the time 597 AD onwards, converts to Christianity. And, and it's an interesting process because as you'll see when you go down and look at the Cuthbert treasures, there's a coming together of different types of Christianity up here in the north that doesn't really happen anywhere else. And this is because of this flow of Celtic Christianity that has been bubbling away from Saint Patrick we could say from around 430 AD and spreading back through Saint Columba up to Iona over to Lindisfarne. What does Celtic Christianity mean? Well nowadays you can go to gift shops and buy lovely Celtic crosses or you know think about these monks wandering around in the landscape and they seem it's an attractive sort of Christianity because it seems to be a Christianity that's much more in tune with nature, uh, with some sort of earlier ideals. In many ways this is true. Christianity first came to Britain with the Romans and it bedded down in this Romano-British culture. And it was when the anglo Saxons and Jutes came over at the collapse of the Roman Empire around 420 AD that what we think of as modern day England stopped being Celtic Romano-British Christian and all of that shifted over into what we now would call the Celtic Uh, fringes of the British Isles. There is a reason that Wales, Cornwall, Scotland, Ireland are different from England and that goes right back to this moment, this moment around 420 AD. That was really when the complexion of the British Isles was, was really formed. And in those areas, in Wales, you can see them all on this map, these sort of orange bits and red bits around the edges. They carried on practising Christianity, and they carried on speaking to one another in Celtic tongues, and they carried on building in stone, writing in Latin, and making wine, <laughs> all those things that the Romans did for us, <laughs> they carry on doing them over there. Whereas in England, the uh, Germanic warrior culture that we recognize from Beowulf, um, which I find fascinating, you know, the world of dragons, the world of, of gods with hammers that make thunder, that all sets itself up in England for a good couple of hundred years. And Ireland, what was going on in Ireland is really interesting because there the Romans never reached Ireland. So all the things that we associate with the Romans, as I've said, roads, aqueducts, all those things, cities, stone buildings, they're really not happening in Ireland. Ireland continues with this sort of tribal identity where you could you could walk for two days and not come across another town or another settlement. And as a result, the Christianity that emerges there is very different. It's kind of exciting, the mission, the, the Celtic monks were very identifiable. You would recognize them and actually they get shown in sculpture always as a sort of a triangle with a face and that's their big walking cloak. They they had to wear big woolen walking cloaks. They had the bell to ring people to bring them together and a small portable book that they could read from, preach from and a portable altar. These These were the identifiable features of a Celtic monk as well as their haircuts. There's a reason that the Synod of Whitby, Bede writes extensively about haircuts. Um, my students always say, oh, Synod of Whitby, not really interesting, is it? It's just about the date of Easter and haircuts. Both quite important things, actually. Um, the haircut thing is because the Petrine tonsia that we've come to associate with Benedictine monks with mon- monasticism from the continent, it looks like a doughnut, doesn't it? It's sort of circular with a hole at the top. The Celtic tonsure was very different. They would grow their hair long at the back and then shave their heads all the way back. So it was sort of like a long mullet at the back. Um, and this seems incongruous, but actually what it's about is difference. The way that people dress, the way that people wear their hair, the way that they identify themselves visually to others showed that those Celtic monks were different. They were deliberately different from the Roman form of Christianity. So. When we get to the Synod of Whitby, it was really about trying to get these Celtic monks to conform, to be the same as the the monks from the continent. But they built up this long heritage, this culture, this way of doing things, that was different, that was rooted in their landscape, rooted in the, 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 the way they had to navigate their way around Ireland. So that is why Celtic Christianity develops this different complexion and it comes over with Saint Columba in a very interesting, I write about Saint Columba because he brings Celtic Christianity over to Iona, but he only ends up on Iona because he's done a very naughty thing. He copies out, it's the earliest um, instance of copyright infringement recorded, (laughs) he borrows a a uh, psalter from Finian, another Celtic monk, and then copies it and keeps the copy. And this really aggravates Finian because it's his book and he should not be using his intellectual property in that way. (laughs) And so they have a battle, a huge battle. Their different families all fight and it leads to tens of thousands of deaths all over a book. This is the power of ideas at this point and Columba ends up having to leave Ireland as a result of this and he ends up on Iona. But what he does on Iona is set up this first outpost of Celtic Christianity on the edges of pagan England. So these warrior kings, these individuals who are living in halls, magnificent like Herot, listening to poetry, fighting, I mean this is the world of of shield maidens and, and mead halls, that is right on the edges of this world of Celtic Christianity that Iona is showing. And from there we get Lindisfarne, that is where Saint Aidan comes from and sets up his monastery at Lindisfarne, which is where all of this story of Saint of Saint Cuthbert begins. Now I've given you a lot of historical context in the space of about 10 minutes so feel free to sit and ruminate on all of that for a bit. Um, but I want to to tell you about this place because this for me is the place I went to that that was the, the place where I felt most connected to the sort of monasticism that Cuthbert would have experienced. At Melrose, first of all, which was his Celtic monastery where he trained, and then at Lindisfarne. This is Skellig Michael. And um, I made a series for the BBC called Britain's Millennium of Monasteries, where we opened up the programme with this sequence going out to Skellig Michael. I was forbidden by the team to do any research on this place before going i'd heard about it but i wasn't allowed to look it up i wasn't allowed to look at images of it they said no 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 we're going to get you there and it will be a raw reaction to the place you'll be excited by it it'll be fantastic we'll capture it all on film um we traveled for days to get to this this edge of ireland which looks out onto the atlantic ocean and um the first real alarm bell went off when we were staying at the pub on the, on the harbour. And they said, oh, you're going to go to Skellig, are you? I said, yes, yes, yes. Well, no, you're not. David Attenborough and his team have been trying for two years and they've not got over that. It's like, oh, no, if David Attenborough hasn't made it, how am I going to make it? Um, and so we thought, well, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. We'll go out in the morning. Got up in the morning, went out to try and get on the boat to go to Skellig. It all looked lovely and calm, but they said, no, no sailing today. The, the sea is too too tumultuous, you can't get out. We thought, well, it doesn't look tumultuous, fine, okay. Next day we try again, same thing happens. You can't go out, it's too tumultuous. Even though the sea looks crystal clear. But we just said, look, let's just get in the boat and start making our way out to Skellig, and, and I'm sure it'll be fine by the time we get there. We left the harbour, and the oceanic waves were like this. And we were in this powerboat powering over. I was so violently sick. It was unbelievably awful the journey over. And he, they were right. This is a, a, a subaquatic mountain, this is the top of a subaquatic mountain. And so there are no shores, or beaches, or bays around the edge it's just sheer rock and to try and get a boat up against that and then climb out is incredibly hard and the waves were sort of pounding on the sides of the rock um, so <laughs> we had this sad re- realization that we're not going to get onto the island let's just film all the piece to cameras from the boat so in between being sick I was thinking, going, monos means alone and trying very hard to make this this sequence work and then And then the, the waters calmed, and, and we did he said, "Do you want to try and get onto the onto the mountain?" And we said, "Yes, yes, yes let 's do it let's do it." So we threw all the equipment up, climbed up. It was all brilliant, and then the the boat turned away, and as the, the, he was leaving he said, "I'll try and come back for you." And he <laughs> sailed off, and we were left on the mountain, and we had no idea whether he was coming back for us, and that sort of added to the drama of being in the middle of an ocean. Um, um, but it was very, it was very uh, dramatic then because we began this um, steep ascent. You can see there are there's a couple of ancient tracks that run up the mountain. But at points, they're like this, they're absolutely almost vertical. I was wearing these boots, so (laughs) you can imagine the climb. Um, But we we got to the top, and what I saw just took my breath away, because nestled in the edge of the cliff are these beehive cells, and they are from about the year 800 AD so they're over 1200 years old they're built from a dry stone walling technique which means there's no concrete holding them together and yet they are warm they keep out the elements they keep out the rain um, you can still sleep in them now and you would be warm and and dry these are the cells of Celtic monks who went out to this island in corrects which are just they're like canoes but they're just made of bits of of stick really bound together with animal hide. The fact that we were struggling to get to this island in a powered boat and these monks were willingly leaving behind the safety of land and going out to this island to stay up the side of a cliff assaulted by the weather for the rest of their lives. This was a strange moment for me to try and relate to. It was particularly Frustrating because on top of that, we um, interviewed an archaeologist who'd excavated the cemetery at Skellig and looked at the bones of the old monks who had been buried there. And he said that the youngest bones belonged to children as young as 10, and the oldest person was about 40, 45, which was a good age to get to in these sorts of conditions. But every skeleton excavated showed extreme trauma trauma to the shoulders, trauma to the arms from having carried things up and down this sheer ascent but most disturbingly trauma to the feet bones and this is because as they were climbing up and down this mountainous these these 600 feet of stone, they were cutting their flesh to ribbons so that it was actually through to the bone, this was extreme physical suffering and something that I I found just so difficult to work out. And the only thing I could think was that they were trying to suffer like Christ. They were trying to emulate the suffering of Christ. And this idea of taking themselves away, they couldn't go to the desert like the Desert Fathers, but they could go out into the sea, they could go to this island and take themselves away from the temptations of society, the distractions of daily life, and immerse themselves in this sort of spirituality. But it really opened my eyes to the extremes that these sorts of Celtic monks could go to. And now Caspard is not this extreme but this is the world that he was exposed to through his his training at Melrose and through his connection to Lindisfarne. Now, Lindisfarne is very much a tempered version of this. It's right opposite Banborough Castle, church and state waving at each other a bit like I was filming at Lambeth Palace a couple of days ago. In Lambeth, the bishop's quarters are right opposite the Houses of Parliament and I always find that idea that they're sort of staring across the River Thames at each other fascinating and that's what it was like at Lindisfarne and Bamburgh. You had the monastery on the island, Bamburgh Castle over on the mainland and that idea of church and state together is quite powerful. Um, but it, this, is, this is a, a worldview that, that Cuthbert would have embraced because of the exposure to Celtic monasticism he had. Now um, you can see Lindisfarne up there, I haven't put Durham on here. That's naughty. Uh, but these are the main main monastic sites that were founded in that first phase of Christianity, when the uh, when the first Christian missions from Rome were coming up and settling around this area. And every one of these monasteries was completely different. When you get to the Benedictine reform and you look forward to the sort of 10th, 11th century, you could travel from one end of Scotland all the way over to Istanbul, Constantinople, staying at monasteries along the way that would have been very similar. They'd have kept similar monastic hours. It was um, a sort of multinational <laughs> corporation, if you like, in that respect, that everywhere you went, you would know that you would be met favorably, you'd be put up, you could travel that way. That was not the case at this point. There was, ex- there was an incredible amount of variety amongst the different monastic houses, particularly up here in the north of England. So each one of these were different to the other. And each one had at their heart an individual who had set up a mon- monastery for different reasons. So Wermuth Jarrow, actually, which one have I got first? I have got Hilda, Hilda at Whitby. So Whitby, Abbey, uh, the home of the Synod of Whitby, set up by a woman, a woman who had spent half her life as an Anglo-Saxon noblewoman, princess, the other half of her life as an abbess of a double monastery, men and women in the monastery at Whitby. And the monastery that she set up, it's, it's quite a glamorous courtly place so these are some of the finds that we have coming out of Whitby things like combs ivory combs so they would keep themselves very nicely turned out things like beads lots of little glass beads that are being imported from the continent Um, styluses writing implements this is fascinating. The idea that everywhere in this monastery, men and women are writing, writing down ideas, thinking things through, and stone and inscriptions. This is um, one of, just one of the inscriptions that's coming out of Whitby. So we can, we can build up an atmosphere at Whitby that is, has this incredible woman at the head of it, Hilda, and is quite a, a courtly and sophisticated place, a place you would want to send your noble children young men, young women, to gain an education, to be alongside like-minded people. So that's Whitby, that's the sort of place that Hilda's setting up there. Then you've got Wilfred. In my book, he's one of the saints I write about and Wilfred's He's one of the more complicated saints. You could put it that way. He was quite difficult, I think. Um, used to aggr- He wanted. He wanted quite a lot of power. So a way you can tell this is when he had his. Um, when he when he was declared bishop, he made sure that there weren't enough decent Christians in Britain, in his opinion. So he shipped over a bunch of french christians to conduct the ceremony he wanted to have it done in the continental fashion which mean that 12 other bishops had to lift him up on the throne and carry him around and this is the idea that you know the 12 apostles and wilfred up at the top like jesus (laughs) That was was sort of his level of self-importance. And he wanted to be more important than the king of Northumbria, so he used to aggravate the king horribly. The king would throw him out and he'd go off to the pope. Then he'd aggravate the pope and the pope would throw him back to the king. (laughs) And they did this a number of times. But he is a fascinating, fascinating character. Very worldly, very traveled, very sophisticated. And and the courts, the the courts, listen, Mm. slip. The monasteries that he set up at Hexham and Ripon were very, very lush, very lavish. And the things that came out of these monasteries were the most sophisticated things. So he had a manuscript made that was empurpled and written in gold. And this was the way that manuscripts for the emperors were made. That's what Wilfred expected at his court, at his monastery. And his throne still survives, the Episcopal throne that you can go and see. I've sat in it. It was very exciting, very old. <laughs> um, so there's the finds associated with Wilfred at Hexham and at Ripon. And then you get bead. Bede at Weymouth and Jarrow, founded by Chelfrith, a contemporary of Wilfred and one of those very, very early converts. Um, Like all of the others, he was also a nobleman first. It's very obvious from reading Bede's history, ecclesiastical history, that it was a top-down conversion. They weren't really worried about what the peasants and the day-to-day people thought. They were getting the kings, the nobility, the people at the top of society to filter Christianity down. So again, another noble person setting up Wymouth Jarrow. And this is different from the other two because I've described Jarrow, Wymouth Jarrow, as being like the Silicon Valley of its day. This is the white heat of Christian technology and Christian ideas bubbling away here. Chailfrith was a bibliophile an art lover. He travelled over to Rome, over to the continent, gathering up all the books and information he could get his hands on. So he is thought to have got hold of the imperial collection of books, Cassiodorus's books from the continent and brought them all up to, up to Newcastle, up to around here, to make this cutting edge library. And then coming out of all that research, all those ideas, the Codex Amiatinus, the first complete, vulgate Bible. It's huge. Um, It weighs the same as a Great Dane. That's the the way that we sort of say it It takes two men to carry it. Thousand skins, animal skins, used to make the, the vellum. And that was just one of three. And interestingly, if you still go to a bookshop and ask to buy a copy of the Vulgate Bible, it will be copied from this manuscript that was made at Underbeads Watch, outside Newcastle at Jarrow, I think that's amazing. And also it was, it lay hidden for hundreds of years. For hundreds of years, they thought the Codex Samuotinus was Italian. And it's in Florence, it's over in Italy. It looks like it should be an Italian project. Surely only the Italians could come up with something this sophisticated, this advanced, the first Vulgate Bible. Well, what had happened was the frontispiece had been graffitied so it's hiding away in this monastery in in this collection connected to Monte Cassino in Italy and where it should have where the frontispiece says who made it there's a line that says this is dedicated by Peter of the Langobards, Italian absolutely fine, nobody questioned it, until this wonderful um, paleographer, Giovanni Battisti di Rossi, looked up, um, looked up this weird text called The Anonymous Lives of the Monks of weymouth Jarrow, And in that was the exact same frontispiece, but where it came to the, Peter of the it actually said, Chaelfrith of wermuth Jarrow. So somebody had gone in, scratched out, and written over the top. And as a result, for hundreds of years, that manuscript was thought to have been made in Italy, when in fact, it was being made by first-generation Christian converts on the edges of the known world at that stage, just up here. I think that's amazing, and I think that's a real claim to fame. So that's Wermouth Jarrow. That's what's
0: going on there.
2: Where does Cuthbert fit into all of this? Well, he is associated most closely with Lindisfarne and I've given you a bit of context about how Lindisfarne has evolved out of this Celtic tradition coming over from Columba, um, Iona, over to Lindisfarne, and I've got these images here just to illustrate yeah, It's Aidan but if you've been to Lindisfarne, one of the most extraordinary things about the experience of course is that it is a tidal island and that it is cut off from the mainland twice a day. Uh, kind of scary when you're filming and you get caught on the tides as the tide is coming in and the sand starts to slip under your feet and you're racing for the shore Uh, but it's very it's it's perfect for celtic ideas of um this monastic isolation so what you had at skellig michael where people are traveling out into the sea to be alone that happens in twice a day naturally on lindisfarne at one point it's connected and then it's cut off from all the temptations of the world physically. So that, that's why the location is so suitable at Lindisfarne. But everything about that site is different. There is a, a one weird uh, serendipity about what's been happening over the last 24 hours. We're opening the Cuthbert Treasures up. We're showing them for the first time in all their glory. And simultaneously, the dig at Lindisfarne that's been taking place for the last few months has closed. It closed yesterday, and that dig has discovered finds related to Cuthbert's monastery on Lindisfarne. Weird and wonderful things like possibly the vellum pit where the vellum was being prepared to make the Lindisfarne gospels. The early buildings that they may have lived in, slept in, stayed in. It's so exciting that this world is starting to come, come out to us. We're starting to see it. So that's Lindisfarne. And unlike, um, unlike Weymouth, Jarrow, Hexham, Ripon, Whitby. This is a place that is, it would have looked different. All of the buildings would have been in timber, there would have been a a real sense that it was like a, a village really, that there were different buildings throughout the site doing different activities, different types of crafts and in that mix we end up with this idea that they are practicing a form of Christianity that is almost almost right in terms of what the, the missionaries from Saint Augustine, Saint from Rome, what they want them to do, but ever so slightly in need of moderate, modification. This is your haircuts, this is your dating of Easter issues that raise their head at the Synod of Whitby. And um, through the Synod of Whitby, it's decided that unfortunately, the Celtic way of doing things gets the thumbs down and the Roman way of doing things gets the thumbs up. So everybody has to, in these Celtic monasteries, has a decision to make. They can either leave and go back to Ireland and continue to do things the way that they've traditionally done it, or they can change and adapt and moderate their way of doing things in line with the Romans. And that is what happens at Lindisfarne. And it is Cuthbert that becomes the poster boy for this change. So he is perfect. He is all things to all men. He is a Anglo-Saxon warrior, Celtic monk, and he is absolutely on point when it comes to the Roman practices. He wants to do it the orthodox way. And when you look at things like the Lindisfarne Gospels, but also the treasures that you'll see down there, all of them reflect this everyman approach that Cuthbert was supposed to show. So. In the Lindisfarne Gospels, you've got this wonderful blending of Anglo-Saxon art, Celtic walls and spirals, and Roman evangelist portraits all brought together to to show really that Lindisfarne as a community can move forward. They can can stay viable and important in this this new post Whitby world. Okay, so we've got, we've got Cusper on the scene a little bit, but how does he end up here? Why are we at Durham? Why, uh, why have you come to see the treasures here and not at Lindisfarne? It's those pesky Vikings. Um, no horned helmets, by the way, that's, Absolutely not the case, but they were pretty brutal, and they did attack Lindisfarne. We see the the start of the Viking Age as beginning in 793 with the first Viking raid at Lindisfarne. So it is Lindisfarne itself that was attacked first, and it's a very dramatic and unsettling set of accounts from this experience. Um, The writers record the altars of the saints flowing with the with blood of innocent monks. And I can imagine how quick and terrifying the Viking assaults must have been. They're coming out of nowhere. No one's anticipating them. Lindisfarne, as I've mentioned, is a tidal island. It's got sea all around it and quite um, shallow shores. This was perfect for Viking longboats. Viking longboats are designed to have a really narrow stern so they can come in on the tide right up the shore, everyone can jump out, they can do their raiding, then they can get back in the boat and go out on the tide. And I think the, the reason that this was such a shock was that really the north of England by this point, by 793, had been Christian for centuries. And in that world, you would never attack a monastery. That was something that Christians understood between each other. You wouldn't go there, and that's why No matter what sort of civil war was taking place, kings and queens would keep their treasure in monasteries because that was a safer place than leaving them in their castles because there was this unwritten rule that nobody would attack a sanctuary, a monastic sanctuary. The Vikings didn't need to hold to that. They had a very different worldview. In their opinion, what were they getting? They were getting a treasure house that was completely undefended and easy to access. There was no one going to attack them, nobody with swords on that place to stop them. And they could go in, take all this portable wealth and head out again. And it is very dramatic and it is rather un, uh, yeah, an upsetting thought of this early raids of Lindisfarne. And so that's what happened. And um, And they went again and again. They kept going back to Lindisfarne. And this triggered a whole set of of Viking assaults on different monasteries, different churches throughout the north. Um, And it's given the Vikings a very bad name, but this is, again, we have to think about the difference in worldview. In their worldview, the need to go a Viking, the need to go out in the summer months, take back wealth and, and. things to sustain their family and their community through the long winter months. That was, that was a real need within their society. And just because they didn't respect the same sanctuary of the monasteries as, as yeah, the Christians did, that was a tricky one, isn't it? Different, world, different views, very, very, very difficult. And Lindisfarne became incredibly vulnerable and incredibly run down by these repeated raids to the point where they left and they left taking the essence of their community with them. What did they take? The coffin. Cuthbert's coffin. They took the bones of their saints from from Lindisfarne, they took the artifacts most closely associated with him, the Lindisfarne gospels, all the things you'll see down there on that display, the the, the, um, portable altar, and they carried it around the countryside for years in search of a place to take this community and re-establish it. And this is where they ended up, here at Durham. And it, I had a very interesting experience when we were with the, cathedral, uh, with the coffin um, earlier on yesterday. Standing next to it, I had this real sense that the, the coffin and its contents were the acorn out of which this oak tree of Durham Cathedral has grown. There would be no Durham without Cuthbert's Bones and Cuthbert's Coffin. So that, is, that gives you a sense in which these treasures are just so important to this place and this community. Um, this is fascinating. So cu- relics, relics, bodily relics, things associated with saints, often form the heart of um, pilgrimage sites, communities, All of the monasteries I've been telling you about, they all had at their heart a founding saint, a saint who who is the sort of identifying factor of that community. And Cuthbert's relics were clearly very well looked after. To the point that the ivory comb you'll see downstairs was used repeatedly to comb the hair of Cuthbert and in his lives we read that his nails continued to grow and his hair continued to grow and they had to keep looking after him and tending to him because this of course is a sign of sanctity if the body remains incorrupt. It means that the saint is all the better, all the stronger. And often you'll find accounts in saints' lives where they go, well, the body was totally incorrupt after 20, 30 years, which is a sign of their sanctity. Now, what is fascinating about Cuthbert is he seems to have stayed incorrupt right the way up to the Reformation. We are talking you know, seven, 800 years later. And this is the account of what happened when the, um, the commissioners came to Durham to destroy the tomb and they're doing this right the way across the north. They're going to all of these sacred spaces, they're pulling out relics, they're pulling out saint's bones, depositing them, getting rid of them. That's part of this process of reformation. But when they got here they they found something they weren't expecting, which which was that um, they found Cuthbert lying whole with his face bare and his beard as if it had a fortnight's growth. This is in 1530. Um, The goldsmith shouted out, Alas, I've broken one of his limbs. Dr. Henley called out, throw down the bones. But the goldsmith replied that he could not do so because they were kept together by skin and tissue. It's all a bit grim, but he is lying whole. If you don't believe me, come up and see it for yourself, at which point Dr. Henley came up and he saw it was actually true that they were undecayed. And so they said that they should move the whole body and this is this is the key to why durham continues to this day it continues because cuthbert's remains then ended up being reburied relocated and this continued as a viable cathedral with that saint at its center that's what makes this cathedral so unique so different so special and that, again, I think comes down to the treasures that you'll see in the exhibition. The fact that the, 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 the coffin and the relics were treated with such honor and such respect for such a long time preserved this identity and this, this individual of Saint Cuthbert at the heart of it. I find that really quite, quite miraculous. Um, there's the comb, <laughs> the ceremonial comb. There's quite a few of these survived from the early medieval period and they are thought to be part of the preparation for uh, for mass, for ceremonies, that the, the priest or the monk would prepare his beard and his hair by ceremonially combing it. So you will see the comb that has actually gone through the hair of Cuthbert himself and the coffin. This is how it used to be exhibited look at this i forgot it had all this sort of weird sand effect at the bottom and strange glowing windows it doesn't look like that now Um, the coffin is the oldest one of the oldest surviving pieces of wood from the before 1066 and it is a unique survival carved on all sides with symbols, with words, with ideas, all designed to protect and shroud and enclose the body of Saint Cuthbert. If I just run through a few slides, I have ended up having to resort to very, very old drawings of what's on the front on the coffin because up until yesterday you couldn't see these things, whereas now I've actually been able for the first time ever to make out the runic inscription on the front of the coffin because of how beautifully and carefully it's been lit. Very exciting! Um, This is the front of the coffin. You can see the Virgin with the Christ child on her knee. This whole coffin dates from around 696 uh, just after Cuthbert's death and so the art that you see on all sides is being plucked from various sources that are contemporary with this and this image is probably coming from some sort of Byzantine iconic tradition where you'd get the virgin and child shown together so, and it's I think it's quite an intimate image because you've got these big eyes on the Virgin that stare out at you, stare out at the viewer. Um, so it's, that's the very front, and can you see, you can see the runes up here? I'll talk a bit more about runes in a minute, but that's um, that's an interesting aspect of this part of the coffin. Then you've got the archangels. These are along the side, and and they wrap around the front. Uh, around the, the the top of the coffin as well. So the archangels wrap all the way around. They're all names, they've all got individual names. And this again is quite radical because at this point in the seventh century, the angels were problematic to the Roman church. Angels were intercessors, but they were also in a way intermediaries, they were cutting off direct communication between the divine and the human. If you prayed to an angel you weren't actually praying to, to God directly, you were praying through a sort of a messenger. And so The church was a bit ambiguous on whether angels were a good or a bad thing, but in the Irish church, in the Celtic church, angels were very, very popular. There were whole long prayers and treaties written with individuals, angels named, um, different stories surrounding them. So it could be that these angels were sort of an indication of that, that Celtic tradition that Cuthbert was exposed to. But then on the other side, of course, as with all things Cuthbert, it's balanced out. On this side, it's balanced out by the Twelve Apostles. They're all a little bit sort of cut and paste with the, <laughs> the design. <laughs> but they've all got slight variations, and the ones to look out for are Peter and Paul up here. Paul always has this nice spiky beard, and Peter has the keys. And they're at the front so the archangels are being balanced out by the apostles the church it's like the community of the church all surrounding the body of the saints and on the lid, we have christ and he's he's christ in majesty carrying the book of judgment this is the the end of days really and surrounded by the four beasts of the apocalypse, also known as the evangelist symbols, but they are the eagle of John, the calf of Luke, the man of Matthew and the lion of Mark. And these are very, very popular symbols in Anglo-Saxon art, but they're all connected both with the end of days, with the vision that you'll see in the heavens when Christ is in judgment, but also with the the evangelist Gospel, each of their gospels. And they are above the body of Cuthbert, they would have lain on top of him. There is the argument that, on the one hand, this is the whole of Christianity, the whole of the community of the faithful embracing and surrounding the body of the saint. But I also do subscribe to this idea that it's a sort of visual prayer, an eternal visual prayer. So you pray to the virgin and child to the angels to the saints and to christ and that is constantly being recited around his body through these images and you add to that the inscriptions the you can see up here can you see there the word lucas l-u-c-a-s sideways everyone's got to get. Go. <laughs> i like to see you all going like that <laughs> lucas in latin underneath though We've got John in runes, right next to each other, Latin script and runic script. Now, this is not an accident. I do not believe that the carver is sat there just carving away in Latin and then, oh, I've slipped into runes. What a mistake, idiot. No, they haven't slipped. They haven't mistakenly changed languages. They've deliberately included both these scripts here. And I think this is being done the two reasons. It's something we see in Anglo-Saxon art on things like the Frank's Casket, the Ruthel Cross, they were aware that they were going through a transition linguistically. The church needs Latin, that is the language of the church, but the people, the Anglo-Saxon people themselves, spoke Old English and they would have used runes to carve into their objects and and that was their script. So combining them together alongside each other shows that transition but it also I think does something else. It protects that body all the more because it is hedging your bets in a way. You're communicating both through the vernacular and through Latin, through the language of the church. So it's another layer of protection on this coffin. It's such a remarkable object and I just can't wait for you all to get down and see it <laughs> um, yeah so this is another example of how this runic transition takes place in Anglo-Saxon art this is a panel from the Frank's Casket probably made at Wilfred's monastery at either Hexmore or Ripon it's an amazing three-dimensional riddle every side has a different message I have a, um, people have worked on this one casket for decades and it can drive you absolutely mad because there isn't an actual answer to to some of the problems that this object poses so it's still a mystery but it also changes language so if you look here it starts off in runes going up this side carries on with smaller runes along the top and then it changes to Latin before it switches back to runes Again, this is not some carver accidentally slipping languages halfway through while carving into whalebone. They're they're very aware of the fact that they can use these two different scripts and two different languages to to express the transition they're going through. And the Cuthbert Coffin is one of those examples of of this wonderful self-awareness. And there's this, the pectoral cross. It looks exquisite the way it is being exhibited at the moment. It needed to be shown in the round. Often Anglo-Saxon artworks are just as interesting from the back as they are from the front. And what happens when you see these small portable private personal pieces of art is they're often pressed up against a backboard and you can't see what's behind them but now you'll be able to get right the way around and it's it, you can see it all the way around, so it's this beautiful three-dimensional object. And the reason I think the Petral Cross is, is possibly one of the most important Anglo-Saxon treasures is because, again, it is a sign of who Cuthbert was and how transitional and important his lifetime was. It was probably, wrapped up very very close to his skin which is why it wasn't declared in the numerous times that the coffins coffin was being opened checked all the things inside it were being reported Um, and there's a reason for that because it is a essentially a grave good this is a thing that really shouldn't have ended up being being buried with him. But it's also a sign of the sort of person he was before he became a bishop. He was an Anglo-Saxon warrior. And this looks like the finds from the Staffordshire Hoard. It looks like the finds from Sutton Hoo. It's that gold and garnet cloisonné that they developed and perfected to the, to the extent that each of those little cells, has a perfectly cut garnet inside it and then a piece of gold foil behind it to sparkle and cut no glue nothing holding them in place just the sheer skill of the craftsmen who have over centuries developed this golden garnet cloisonné jewellery and Cuthbert has a piece of that he has a bit of that heritage that history in this cross so I said earlier, he is all things to all men. In this respect, he is holding on to that earlier Anglo-Saxon artistry and culture. And I think that this is just such a personal piece as a result. Um, oh, there it is, looking looking glorious from the front. One of the things that I'm often asked about with the cross, why is it this shape? Why is it this sort of equal-armed curved shape? Well you could look at this and draw a circle around it like this and if you did that and you filled in these spaces here with similar bosses like that, You've got a composite disc brooch. You've got those wonderful Anglo-Saxon brooches that you find again and again holding up their clothes. This is a modified version of that design by taking out those elements. The same craftsmen are probably making these objects for Christians now, but they've developed it on this cross shape. So it's an adaptation. It's a development, a transformation. I find it really exciting when you see these examples. the portable altar. If if the comb gives the impression of Cuthbert as this sort of a very uh, powerful bishop with all his ceremonial garb, and if the cross gives an indication of Cuthbert as an Anglo-Saxon, someone coming out of the Anglo-Saxon tradition, then this is the object that speaks most clearly about his Celtic Christian training. This little portable altar, it's got five crosses on it, one, two, three, four, five, it's small, and this is what he would have used to wander and preach. He would have used this and the Stonyhurst Gospel book, that lovely little book of uh, uh, John's Gospel that's now in the British Library. Those were his the tools of the Celtic monk, they were the basic elements of a missionary, Celtic missionary, what he needed to wander and preach. So you'll see this for the first time properly as well. There it is, there's the Stody House gospel wrapped up in the coffin with Cuthbert, and the oldest surviving cover leather cover to a manuscript it's incredible it's such a rare survival as with all of these things you could just tell that the community first at Lindisfarne and then here at durham have treasured and looked after these things so well that that is why they survive unlike any other examples. This has got its original cover because it's been looked after. Likewise, um, these embroideries that are added into the, the, um, the treasure's a couple of hundred years later by the Royal House of Wessex. These are the earliest and best surviving examples of Opus Anglicanum, that English work embroidery, which was famed for the medieval period. This is the own, pretty much the only example with figures that is still intact. You know why? Because Opus Anglicanum was absolutely worked with gold thread, real gold thread. and you'll find little scraps of English work embroidery, but all the gold threads being picked out or pulled out because you can pull out the thread, melt it down, and you've got loads of solid gold. But in this example, they survive. Nobody's done that because they're part of these treasures, these relics associated with the saint, and as a result, they survive. It's gonna be very exciting to see when you see them in the light. And then, The final piece of the puzzle that is not yet here, but it should be the Lindisfarne Gospels. This is the final piece of the puzzle. It's the final piece of what I've been telling you for this last hour about who Cuthbert was, what Lindisfarne is, why Durham is here. This is the the cult object at the heart of of St. Cuthbert's community, where it's all brought together in one piece. You've got the uh, animal interlace writhing over the carpet pages, which is an echo of that earlier zoomorphic design that you see in Anglo-Saxon metalwork. You've got the walls and spirals here that are coming out of Celtic art, Celtic metalwork. All of that, um, and then alongside it, evangelist portraits as well, pictures of the evangelist, combining all this effort all done with the hand of one man, Ayadvath, the Bishop of Lindisfarne himself, done in honour and in memory of Cuthbert. A huge labour of love, something that would have been painful, exhausting. Uh, I've worked with a scribe who tried to reproduce just a part of the Lindisfarne Gospels in the original environment with the wind blowing, with all the, you know, being outdoors trying to find the light. And he said he's, I cannot believe the Lindisfarne Gospels ever got made because it's just such a feat, an extraordinary feat, a scribal activity. And that is the piece that completes this story about Cuthbert's treasures and Cuthbert's relics. Alongside trying to get the the Lindisfarne Gospels up here to Durham, I'm also on a campaign to get St. Cuthbert made the patron saint of England. (laughs) I think we could do a lot worse than that. Um, St. George, he's not a proper native saint. We need Cuthbert. So... um, I hope you've enjoyed this. I hope that having an understanding of who he is, where he came from, why he's important, will make sense of those treasures when you go and see them. But they are beautifully exhibited in the only intact surviving monastic kitchen, all of those were also destroyed. So you are getting a unique layered experience of history that only you can get here at Durham. It's extraordinary. And I have said that the treasures you will see are equivalent to the Tutankhamun's tomb of the Northeast. That's what the treasures of Cuthbert mean to me, and they should mean to this community. Thank you so much for coming to hear
1: me. <laughs>